thanking TL and others for um, inviting me to come and speak today and I will also apologise that I have a cold so if I seem uh, slow or stupid I hope that's not how I normally am though it's possible. Um, so, uh, Teal said I wanted to talk about my project. I'm in the middle of writing a book which is uh, currently called The Class, Living and Learning in the Digital Age. Uh, and uh, the whole book is kind of swelling around in my head and I'm going to try and give you a sense of where the argument is going today. Uh, and I thought I would illustrate it with two images that uh, you can see that I took when uh, I first arrived here in Boston a month or so ago. Uh, everyone said I had to go to the market and uh, there was my word, connected. I'm thinking a lot about um, connections at the moment and uh, connected learning. And then um, I couldn't uh, get any money until I opened a bank account, so I opened a bank account at the Bank of America, which may or may not have been a good choice, and there it was, connected again. And I began to think that the Connected Learning Network was having a bigger influence than uh, I'd first thought. But, uh, of course, what I see is that we have... Oh. Now what do I do? Sorry, I was leaning on it. Okay. No? Yes. I'll try not to lean on it. Um, so I see that the notion of connected is, or connection, is becoming a really kind of core societal value today, and that's what I want us to think about um, as we, in many ways, begin to celebrate the notion of what it is to get more and more connected. Uh, we think of connections as um, agentic and creative. We think of the ways in which they can overcome barriers and blockages to facilitate interaction and flow. Of course, the notion of connection doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the digital or the networked age, but it resonates fantastically well with uh, the notion of digital networks um, and the ways in which digital networks can underpin and enable social networks, learning networks, and so forth. So it's very easy to say um, connection is good and therefore disconnection is bad. And that's the kind of the sort of really uh, simple opposition that I want to um, think about. But I think it's been very important for all kinds of uh, reformist agendas, uh, institutional reform, trying to think how do we manage connections. Uh, and as you'll see, that's been a very important idea in the educational reform movement. It's also been important whenever we think about uh, children uh, and in childhood studies, because one of the key characteristics of late modernity is the way in which children children have been increasingly kind of sequestered, increasingly kind of taken out off the street, out of everyday life, away from all kinds of adult spaces that we now worry may uh, corrupt their innocence. So um, in a way, uh, children being sequestered has been a kind of indicator of civilised affluence. Uh, and there are many who are working to, as it were, reconnect children uh, into civic or educational or social uh, spaces. So connection for those kinds of reforms becomes uh, a very kind of key uh, value. But we in the third sector or in childhood studies or in uh, academia are not thinking about connection, uh, as it were, um, independently of the rest of the world. And as my two uh, advertisements there illustrate, uh, all kinds of government, institutional and commercial bodies are also thinking about how to kind of harness the value of connection and the appeal of connection. And I want to kind of really come back to that tension and what it means when, uh, in the case of this project, both governments and commerce come to kind of... Um, uh, 
not quite jump on the bandwagon, but kind of harness some of the beneficial values that I think in the public sector we've been associating with the notion of connection. So that will, you'll see that that's going to kind of run um, as, as a theme. Um, at the same time, of course, the kind of contrary effort to protect children, and this is the other part of my work that I'm not really going to talk about, but TL just mentioned a lot of things about internet safety and child protection. That's, um, that notion of kind of keeping children safe and separate is becoming uh, fantastically strong uh, and uh, as, as a kind of counter to the possibilities of connection. Um, and if we ask why, then I would bring in the kind of broad uh, frame that I want to use for the book overall, where I've been thinking about uh, what Ulrich Beck calls the risk society, and how do we understand what are the kind of key features of our society in late modernity. Um, so if we think of the work of Beck, or um, Anthony Giddens, or um, Zygmunt Bauman, they all write about the ways in which traditional structures and, and values are kind of falling away or fading in importance, and new kinds of uncertainties and indeterminacy are assailing us on all sides. So I could say more about that um, if, if, um, if it comes up, but I want to kind of hold on to this, this wide framework in which we feel that there are many uncertainties, anxieties, risks at the same time, and that leads us to kind of want to protect and build uh, safety mechanisms around children. At the same time, we want to kind of uh, connect and um, uh, build new kinds of networks. Um, and when we do that, there are, as it were, um, some very agentic ways of thinking about that that might be quite child-led, but there are also ways in which uh, commerce and government, as you see, don't figure very happily in my story today. Uh, and so I think there are some tensions around connection as well as around disconnection. And I'm trying to kind of complicate that opposition between um, connection good, disconnection bad uh, in, in this talk. Nonetheless, despite that kind of big um, big theory intro, I'm going to talk about one class of uh, children that I've been, or one class of young people that I've been working with, which is a very kind of particular uh, and concrete story, uh, and try and kind of put it into that, that, that wider framework. I'm also working kind of between the risk society notion and the class. I'm working with a kind of intermediate framework, uh, which is the one um, that is funding the project on the class, which is the project of connected learning. So uh, this is actually a slide, I think this is from um, the connected learning website a little while ago, but the connected learning is part of the digital media um, learning initiative that the MacArthur Foundation is funding and I'm sure you know um, about it in, in its various ramifications. You could see the MacArthur, whole, the whole MacArthur initiative as a kind of response to some of those concerns about the risk society and the falling away of certain kinds of traditional structures of both school and home and indeed community. That there are a whole set of ways in which the critique of school as somehow broken or the home as somehow, uh, the family as somehow broken that the, you can see this initiative as looking for a way within a 
a more indeterminate, more networked society of, of trying to find ways of rebuilding uh, structures or rebuilding um, practices and patterns that can be enabling and freeing, uh, given uh, a critique of, those, of, of, of particularly school and um, family. So I think you'll be familiar with the idea that uh, we have 20th century schools for 21st century uh, children or 21st century jobs, uh, that um, schools have their back to rather than their face towards the future in all kinds of ways, and that families really don't know how to support children either in relation to the school or in relation to the very kind of uncertain and anxiety-provoking future that uh, faces them. So there's a, there's, a, there's a lot of uncertainties, and within that... Um, you can see the MacArthur funded work and the connected learning uh, network and its, and its um, associates in particular which is led by Mimi Ito sorry she has a play button on her face um, I'm sure you're familiar with her work too you can see it as, as, a, as a way of trying to build alternative structures, not traditional structures, not um, necessarily the kind of the structures that have been falling away with late modernity, but ones which are very child-led, one, ones which are very kind of um, agent-centred, and structures which are defined in terms of networks rather than um, kind of walls and uh, doors to buildings necessarily. Ways of building connections that can um, have some uh, kind of structure permanence uh, and enable new kinds of opportunities. So of course those ideas even have been uh, within the history of radical education movements or radical reform movements for uh, the past half century probably but the, the moment seems ripe or the potential seems great now that we have easy ready access to digital networks uh, even in the homes of uh, many of the poorest children, at least in the global north, uh, that we can begin to think about building uh, relatively accessible, easy connections uh, that can link home, school, uh, interests or link um, uh, after school, in school and um, uh, community sites that can build all kinds of connections that will be uh, child-centred and will uh, harness and kind of maximise the benefit of what children are learning, what children know, what children are interested in uh, as, they, um, as they kind of go about their daily lives. So there's a vision, um, and it's um, a, a particular vision, and one that quite a lot of effort is going into uh, trying to kind of mobilise, uh, but I think we still don't know what it looks like in a pretty kind of um, ordinary, everyday setting. A lot of that vision is associated with um, kids who are very geeky, or hackers, or entrepreneurial, or um, they're kind of at the leading edge, the early adopters, uh, and... A lot of that is um, uh, very stimulating and very kind of exciting as mapping out what the potential could be. But what I really um, have always been interested in my work is, as it were, what does the ordinary uh, look like? What does any of this look like from the perspective of the ordinary child, where I think a lot of those characterizations of the risk society and its anxieties and indeterminacies uh, are very strong, but um, some of those kind of uh, more uh, leading-edge, creative, um, participatory opportunities uh, may not yet have reached. So uh, the class is situated in, in as it were, um, 
ordinary everyday life um, and uh, within the connected learning network it therefore forms a kind of counterpoint to some of the debates about what could be and where uh, could children's lives go um, by trying to say okay well what are the what are the barriers, what are the commitments, what are the practices that, um, that lock them into uh, their ordinary lives. So this project is um, I'm conducting with Julian Sefton-Green, who is a media educationalist, and I'm more used to studying the home, and in a way through our expertise we're trying to bring together what we know about school, what we know about home, uh, and ask these questions, uh, which are the kinds of questions you write when you have to write down your research question, and uh, I won't read them out because you can all read. Um, so, the project has been um, ethnographic. Um, I'm still in debate with my friends in anthropology about whether I'm going to call it an ethnography or whether I'm going to say this is participant observation or how I'll position it, but... Um, we spent a year, just a bit over a year in the lives of one class of children. There were 28 children, and they were aged 13 to 14, and they were aged 13 to 14, which I think is your eighth grade, and in Britain is year nine. Uh, they, were that age, they were that age for a particular um, reason. So uh, you could say they're the Facebook age, because they can all go on Facebook now. Um, they're the age that parents uh, groan about the most. Uh, you only have to say to someone, I have a 13-year-old, and everyone is immediately sympathetic, unless you're a 13-year-old, of course, in which case everyone is excited by what the, uh, the possibilities could be for you. So it's an age that is kind of beginning to look forward, looking for its steps of independence. Uh, in the British system, they're making uh, some uh, significant educational decisions. They're just beginning to look forward, and we make our decisions very early. So from the point of view of um, closing down options, we also close down options for kids very early. And it's sometimes called the lost year in the UK system um, because they're not doing uh, exams that count towards their future. Uh, but that made it um, a good year for us to study because the teachers didn't think they were doing anything so very important that we would be getting in the way. So uh, we, could, um, we could do our study. Um, you might say that a British school or a school is a very um, problematic place to do a piece of fieldwork about digital media learning because the first thing that we saw when we walked into the school was all the ways in which technology was kept out of children's lives um, precisely because of that kind of risk and fear agenda was so very strong uh, that it took me about five minutes to wander around the school and just kind of um, capture the ways in which it's not just no Facebook, no phone. Oh, okay. I really shouldn't have done that. Yes. Stop it. <laughs> okay. Never use your phone when you're not concentrating. Um, so many of the... Um, um, you could say the message straight off is to say no technology and that would be a misleading message um, as I'm going to um, show you about this school but I think um, it does begin to just trigger some of the questions about disconnection that were very strong uh, in a study that was trying to be about connection um, and uh, I'm often asked how do we get access to one, one class to spend a year with 
with these kids and uh, the sad answer is that the school was so anxious about technology that they wanted us to come in and kind of help them work through how to deal with the fears and the same was exactly true of the parents as well when we then went from the school to the home and said to the parents we'd like to come and hang out in your house um, and talk to everyone at home it was you know are you going to advise us on Facebook and how long they should spend on their phone and is it okay if they do this or that so the risk agenda was very good for us as researchers but um, quite um, problematic for the school and the children and an immediate barrier to any notion of connected learning that might look to say how are we going to uh, find bridges between what children could learn um, in school home and other places well, you probably can't read that in detail, but I just thought I'd flash up our methods for those who like methods and to say I'm happy to answer questions about methods. But essentially, we took the model of um, the model of connected learning says children can generate their spontaneous interests in any place, but most often it doesn't happen at school. But they could then take those into the peer group and develop them. They could take those online. They could take those to school. And connected learning would, you might say, is working well when children are validated for what they know or what they, they are spontaneously interested in, and they might get validated for that at school. So we took those kind of places of children's lives, home, school, and peer group and mapped them onto the three terms of the school year that we studied. So we spent the first phase, phase one was spent at school where we sat in class. Um, we listened to the way the classroom, uh, we sat in a lot of classes, we hung out in the corridors, um, we interviewed the teachers, we interviewed the kids, we observed all kinds of different uh, know, computer clubs and drama workshops and so forth. The second phase, we went home with the kids and we um, uh, talked to them at home, we talked to their parents, we watched them in the living room doing whatever they did with their siblings. Uh, we went online with them, we became their Facebook friend, we asked them to kind of show us a tour of their house, a tour of their computer, a tour of their um, various kind of uh, social media profiles. And then phase three, which was probably the most difficult, we tried to get more into the peer group. Um, and um, I'm sure it doesn't help that both Julian and I are the wrong side of 50 and uh, trying to kind of hang out with um, groups of 13-year-olds. But we, um, we, we, we got a fair way in kind of going with them to what one might say were interest-led events, going to uh, football practice or going to um, drama group or going to a music group, but um, probably not hanging out with just the kids on their own in their social lives very much. Um, I should just, before I get to my kind of the things I would like to present to you, say something about um, diversity. Um, so uh, here's the map, here's the school. This is where the kids live, and as is the kind of peculiar way. Um, I don't know how typical that is here. This is a road that pretty much divides social class. So wealthier kids live here and poorer kids live there. And um, the fact that there's a road is, is, is indicative. But it's also typical of, the, of a school that they would try and draw as a distinctive social experiment. Please don't try to identify where this is. Okay. <laughs> well, where is it? It's anonymous. 
I'm protecting the school's identity. Brits are not allowed to stare at this map. <laughs> um, the point I want to make is it's, it is a deliberate um, policy, uh, typical in this regard, um, that there would be a mix of... Uh, um, uh, both social class and indeed ethnicity and I said in my blurb in advance that I'd say something about social reproduction which I think um, might get a little downplayed in what I want to say but um, uh, social reproduction is um, one of the things that schools do very well uh, and one of the things that by the end of everything we had to discover about children's digital media uses um, was um, probably more exacerbated than ameliorated it's certainly um, Yes, there wasn't much improvement. Okay. Um, Danny Miller wrote a nice book called Tales from Facebook. I don't know if people um, know it, but uh, anyway, here are my um, not as wittily uh, titled Tales from Facebook, but Tales from um, Fieldwork, because I'm at the point where I may just be moving from... Do you talk about not being able to see the wood for the trees? Is that metaphor? Yeah. Forest for the trees. Okay, good. I'm glad some of my metaphors work. So I'm just beginning to see a path. <laughs> but um, I shall uh, test out on you whether you, um, uh, what you think of this um, particular path. So I want to talk about the lives of one class of 13-year-olds, of young people. Um, and I want to think about how the young people, their parents and their teachers can see opportunities for connection at a time of anxiety and heightened risk. Um, and I want to, what I want, what my, what my tales are going to show you is ways in which that very fact of anxiety and risk means that people are preferring, the, as it were, the safe structures uh, and retreating rather than pursuing the new pathways of connection that might be open to them. Um, and, sin and, the and since structures of any kind are also, as I argued at the start, kind of fading in strength and importance, um, especially in, in guaranteeing kind of clear outcomes, there's a new set of, um, if you like, rapidly becoming established practices or forms of support um, that I'm thinking about as coming in as, as new ways of providing certainty in an uncertain world um, when uh, some traditional um, structures no longer can. So most obviously for young people, any simple translation from school qualifications to a career for life or jobs for life no longer applies. So there's all kinds of uncertainties facing these young people as they try to look forward. So what certainties do they, do they find instead? Um, okay, so, yeah... So I'm going to give you some, some case studies and I'll start with one that I've just been thinking about um, a lot, though there's not too much to say about it, but I just use this as my kind of trigger story. Okay, so as we were looking uh, in, in the young people's lives for ways in which they might be using digital media to pursue their interests or develop new kinds of uh, connections or new opportunities for learning, um, Sarah showed us her um, mobile uploads on Facebook, uh, which she, um, she clearly sits at home and she plays with Play-Doh. Do you have Play-Doh? Yeah, good. She's... And she makes all kinds of nice food and she makes these beautiful images. She uploads them, she puts them on Facebook, her friends like it. And this kind of absorbed Sarah for maybe three months or six months of the fieldwork year. 
Um, and I could say uh, she's harnessing a number of the affordances of the digital media. It's interactive, it's networked, um, uh, it's very visible. I could say that she's um, uh, learning some things and she's kind of connecting her different spaces um, and being quite creative. Um, it's not something that turned out to develop any kind of pathway for her and so by the end of our field work she'd stopped doing this and was doing um, something different. It was not um, the kind of creativity that could lead to further creativity or more complex kinds of um, communities of creativity uh, and it's kind of typical of a lot of what we saw, that the potential is there. We started coding for kind of blocked pathways and ways in which um, opportunities weren't really followed up. It's not that young people didn't have uh, creative interests or learning interests or ways they wanted to um, uh, connect with others and kind of build a sharing community, but they didn't really go anywhere. They didn't really have an analysis of why that was. Uh, and it wasn't very clear who one might even have expected to kind of step in and say, hey, Sarah, I see you're interested in making things. Let's get you to a maker's fair or let's get you to a place where you could, um, you know, do some remixing of these images and uh, find other people who are um, doing artistic work as well. None of that happened. And that's just kind of emblematic for me of the way in which very often nothing happens. The kid moves on. Um, she goes back to whatever she was doing. Uh, and the, the uh, it's very subtle moments that get lost. I see the absence of a pathway as problematic, yes. I don't see what she's doing as either good or bad, but she was expressing an interest which would have liked a pathway to develop further, didn't find it, moved on. Yeah. Okay, um, so that was just a kind of snippet. Um, so, my, so I'm going to give you a kind of series of tales from the fieldwork then, and I think they build up somewhere, but uh, we'll see. Okay, um, as we spent our first time sitting in the school uh, and um, trying to sit at the back of the classroom and the kids were um, doing their various lessons, I was listening for uses of digital media and what was completely striking was the ways in which um, old media, broadcast media, were being um, constantly cited within the classroom as a way of um, uh, providing a kind of way into all kinds of lessons. Um, so I gather that not every um, class in this country has um, a smart board at the front, but they pretty much do um, in Britain now. And the smart board... Um, is being used in this uh, instance in a very typical way, which is it's being used uh, to provide the seating plan uh, so that the kids know where they should sit in the class. Um, and that is emblematic of two things that I want to mention. Firstly, the way in which um, what, could be, what could be more flexible is very often kind of closed down in something more structured and quite kind of well-managed or disciplined, we might say. Um, and uh, secondly, um, what could or should be an interactive medium, what is an interactive medium, is being used as a one-way medium. And that was... Um, endemic. So the smart board to the teacher was a very convenient way of mass communication, not um, interactive communication. And what was mass communicated on the smart board very often was popular culture. Um, was showing bits of Hollywood films to illustrate um, something that was happening in the geography lesson or the history lesson or 
um, playing bits of um, something that was on television as the news as a trigger for discussion for creative writing or whatever um, the class was was doing. Um, many, many ways in which uh, popular culture was referred to and at first of all it, it kind of bugged me and I started saying why are they always talking about popular culture and then I began thinking about civility um, as I've put up there. So go back to the way in which the class was very divided by social class and very divided by ethnicity. Um, most, not any one particular dominant ethnicity, including not dominant um, white English kids. The kids were from uh, many different backgrounds. Um, and it really triggered it when um, I watched the um, history teacher using an episode of Roots to teach about slavery. And kind of steadfastly ignoring the fact that half the kids in the class were black and might have some different orientation towards slavery than the white kids in the class. Anyway, they might have kind of things to say. And in fact, even ignoring the fact that some of the um, black kids stuck up their hands and did know things about slavery that were kind of off the curriculum or beyond the curriculum. And wanting to kind of, the teacher wanting to hold on to the, um, uh, the episode of Roots, which is a pretty old show now, um, to illustrate her point and I think it was something she wasn't being um, uh, incompetent or, or unsubtle she was trying to kind of manage a space in which everyone was equal and everyone knew the same and there was a kind of civil expectation of um, of politeness and courtesy and of an, an, an not noticing difference because difference is difficult and difference could be disruptive and difference um, could be unfair so we saw many examples of, of this kind of very one-way form of mass communication and scattered through them were what we might call um, kind of um, uh, very preliminary and unsatisfactory efforts for teachers to do something more uh, interactive. So some teachers would try and set up a blog um, or some teachers would try and do something uh, interactive um, with the whiteboard um, and generally these didn't um, get very... Uh, far and one reason they didn't get very far and this comes back to my theme about disconnection is that very often they were kind of pushed to the margins of the class and positioned in a way that would um, connect them to the home so the teacher would make a blog and put up her math problems on it and um, ask the kids to go on at home and kind of get into the blog and participate and post comments and so on um, and it wasn't that the kids weren't interested in the idea of, of the teacher blogging but they didn't want to do it at home and they didn't want this kind of activity spreading into their home life so um, and the teacher didn't um, design things uh, fantastically well anyway um, so there was a very the, the seating plan is emblematic of the teacher's determination in the school to treat to kind of manage the kids um, social presence in relation to each other so that they all had a kind of equal chance um, to study and one of the things we did was we then mapped the social network within the class which I will show you um, and what the social network immediately showed, not to you, but to me, <laughs> um, was the reproduction of gender, class, and ethnicity. So the, it was done as a whole class network, as you can imagine, um, and we asked the kids questions like, um, 
here's all the other kids in the class. Who do you hang out with after school? Who do you ask for homework help from? Who would you turn if you had a problem? Um, who are you? Who do you chat with online? Um, the kind of those kinds of questions. Um, and this, so this is the network that resulted taking into account all of those questions. And what I need to tell you, apart from saying that yellow is boys and blue is girls, um, is that pretty much these are kind of middle class kids. And on the edges are the poorer kids. And pretty much these are white kids. Um, though not entirely, with the kind of ethnic kids pushed a bit more to the edges. And these are the two at the top who are the gifted and talented kids who are kind of out there and they get a bit disconnected from the network when you look at just who do you hang out with, but they get very heavily connected when you look at who do you ask for homework help from, because that's when those girls come into their own. Um, and uh, these are some rather kind of uh, isolated girls, this one especially, who's the one who bullies and gets bullied. Um, and these ones don't speak terribly good English. Um, so there's a lot I could say about the patterns. But what I really want to say is that kind of underneath um, a discourse of talking, using popular culture as a way of saying we all share something, we all have a kind of common knowledge and we're all kind of equal in this language of the classroom which can be a democratic space. Underneath it there was the kind of quiet through the friendship groups and through the social patterns of the kids. There was um, a kind of reversion to or hanging out with um, uh, a kind of class ethnic um, uh, patterning that kind of reproduces itself. Okay, so that's kind of one set of um, observations really about the way in which um, difference is kind of masked within the space of the school in a way that is quite um, seen by the teachers as rather constructive. Um, one way mass media, not interactive media, is used as the kind of common language to manage that. Uh, and when the kids go away from the classroom into their separate spaces, they kind of regroup in, their, um, uh, uh, in, in, in patterns that uh, we might say uh, manage social reproduction. Okay, and um, as it were minimize the possibility of other kinds of connections. There are exceptions, that, um, but not very many. Okay, a second kind of um, story that, or a second kind of set of observations that I want to talk about. I have to say that even though um, we observed the teacher blogs not really getting off the ground and the coding club was a bit of a disaster and only two kids turned up um, and uh, they were the gifted and talented um, girls. And um, even though a lot of the technology was used in this kind of very one way, uh, the school was doing very well. Uh, it was kind of rising itself up from the middle up into being um, one of the kind of better schools. And one way it was doing this was by using... Um, one kind of digital network technology fantastically effectively, and that was the school information management system. 
Um, I don't know if you have school information management systems here. Um, okay, it was being used. Um, so, very co so the school suddenly showed itself to be very competent. And this, again, just like talking about Hollywood films in the middle of um, maths or history, um, was quite striking. So, too, was the way in which they talked about um, uh, a kind of uh, routine data collection of the children, of the pupils' um, behaviour and attainment that was being constantly entered into um, a system of uh, observation and, uh, you might want to say, uh, surveillance. So at ev in every class the teacher would have her, com her or his computer um, and through the conduct of the class um, perhaps one or two observations might be made of every child, um, every student, you're doing well, you're doing badly, you're behaving badly, you've got a good grade, you asked her you answer the question well or not. Um, I've put up an example of one boy who was not so very good um, and all his badness was recorded. So at the end of every day, perhaps, um, each child would have gathered, um, I don't know, between two and ten data points. And these were kind of being encoded by the teacher in every class through each class and they would be called out at the start and the end of each day by the um, teacher in the homeroom. Is that the right language? In the teacher room. Uh, and they would be kind of called out um, and uh, there was a lot of, you can see the school was covered in a lot of kind of exhortations about how to behave and it was also covered in a lot of kind of exhortations about um, what, um, what levels to reach, what uh, standards of attainment to reach. And there was a kind of running coding of this going on. Um, so it went into the system. And um, the system, and this dovetailed with what we have a national curriculum which specifies what levels of attainment children are meant to um, attain in everything. And it dovetailed with a kind of discourse which really um, uh, was very strongly defining of the interaction between the teacher and the um, students. So uh, here's a bit of, um, as it were, discourse which is the start of a music lesson and it has been quite strongly dictated by the government who's designed a national curriculum with a whole series of levels and sub-levels and tasks that children have to attain for every um, uh, every subject uh, and I found this a kind of rather curious um, kind of text to begin a music lesson with but we heard lots of this kind of talk as well um, and a lot of, just as we had exhortations about how to be good and polite on the wall, there was also a lot of exhortations about how to raise your uh, level of attainment um, around the school too. And the talk was, it, it just kind of seamlessly integrated the, um, the content of what the students were meant to be learning, the uh, kind of people that they would become through the process of learning. Are you one of those people who does this or that, are kind of talking themselves into being in a particular kind of um, learning environment or, or, or learning style? And then it would become data within the uh, school information management system. Uh, and the whole thing was so onerous that uh, you might almost wonder whether anyone was going to learn music or um, find pleasure in learning music. And the, um, the kind of the catch for this 
was that we, um, again, as you know, ethnographers, maybe we're meant to be neutral, but we sat there kind of feeling quite agitated about this and feeling this was very um, oppressive and surveillant and intrusive. And then we began interviewing the parents, the teachers and the students, and they all liked it. Nearly all liked it. They were happy with the system that to them provided a kind of structure of certainty that allowed them to know exactly what they had to do in order to achieve what they needed to achieve. And um, whether or not it had much to do with learning music or learning history um, was kind of not the point. It was a system that delivered and could be seen to be delivering because the whole process of recording and constructing the database was made so very visible and uh, invited a kind of reflexivity about what kind of learner they were becoming um, that they felt they could manage and um, kind of keep a handle on. So they would explain the system to us with a certain kind of pleasure in uh, what it was that they'd learned in a way that they did not explain um, with any pleasure what they'd learned about music or history. Um, For a connected learning vision, this is... um, a very difficult system to dovetail with. So you could be learning music here, knowing that you had, as it were, learned how to practice till you get it right, and then get a tick in the box in the database um, and move on. And it's um, just incommensurate with how a child might be learning music in another space. Out of out, so so it's a kind of closed system a very particular system, very effective within the school, very closed off from the point of view of uh, managing ways in which children's learning could be um, integrated across different kinds of spaces. How am I doing in time since I've screwed up my... Okay. Right. So that was my kind of second key story. So when we went, um, when we went home... And we uh, started talking to the children about how they use the digital media at home. That sense of home is an escape and a release and a space that was... um, Not that they didn't like the school, but they really, really needed a space that was kind of about um, vegging out and uh, using digital media in a completely different way. And the last thing, you can almost kind of see it in the photos, that as soon as you see the photos, you can see that they don't want to be on the teacher's blog. Um, Or they don't, um, uh, they're not going to figure out how learning their guitar is going to dovetail with the system that is recording musical achievement at school, because it's just uh, incommensurate. Um, so, uh, so home as an escape just seemed very powerful and it made us really start to think about positive disconnections. Why it is, what's at stake that people want to keep the space of the home separate and how that vision of connecting everything has got to find a way of recognising people's um, positive desire for disconnection or uh, safety or evasion of the system of their management and surveillance and discipline uh, that can be very strong, uh, especially for young people at school. So I want to make a kind of parallel argument between um, the school as a civil space of equality and um, but very carefully kind of managed and surveilled and the way in which the young people were using Facebook. And you'll tell me if you find it um, convincing or not. 
So I want to suggest that Facebook has become for this generation a similarly kind of civil space. Uh, not the space, not the opportunity that we um, thought about Facebook um, just five years before when um, I think a lot, of, um, a lot of adults, certainly a lot of parent ideas about Facebook first got formed. Um, so a lot of people have been saying this now, but um, we know that if you talk to young people, they're kind of... I don't think they're deleting their profiles, I don't think they're turning it off, but they're withdrawing their commitment from Facebook. Uh, and they're looking for other places to put their commitment and to put their kind of personal um, uh, concerns. So it was very easy. Uh, year 7 was when they were uh, 11 years old. So when they first arrived at the, from the small school to the big school and their need to kind of connect up and be part of, to know what everyone else was doing was absolutely intense. And they all went on Facebook. And then by the age that actually they're allowed to be on Facebook, they're kind of already jaded and moving away. Um, or as I say, was drawing their um, commitment. And the way in which they talked about um, Facebook therefore was very interesting. So we couldn't put it into the network of the whole class because they were all friends with everybody so it just made the network a mess. Uh, and um, they had each on average about 500 friends and about 500 photos and as many likes. It's not that they weren't still there and they were spending several hours a day on it, but they were also moving away. Um, and when I did interviews with... Um, I happened to spend one summer doing interviews with a similar age group uh, five years before, and they were all just at that moment of moving from MySpace to Facebook. And they were all talking about MySpace as had allowed them to uh, express their individuality and tailor their background and so on. But Facebook seemed adult, and its kind of clean black and white layout seemed very kind of uh, mature. Now it seems very standardized to them. And it seems very standardized and very constraining in ways that they messed with a little bit, you know, so they'd kind of say, um, you know, they'd, they'd name their friends as family and so on, and a few of them were messing with their names, though not very many. So there was a bit of messing with the, with the um, interface, but essentially they were kind of accepting it as the place where everyone was, and by and large where you would be rather courteous. And we looked through how they interacted, and they were not commenting intensively and expressing themselves creatively, and um, they were not getting into big arguments very much, though the teachers got quite enough of those arguments to have to deal with and quite enough kind of anxiety. So actually, it seemed to me a bit like the classroom where popular culture was the kind of the common language, and here you see that it is too, where people were rather polite to each other and they were just kind of keeping the door open to know um, what might be happening, where the action might be. Uh, they don't want to miss anything, but they're not... Um, uh, a bit like the, the, the way in which when they leave that classroom of, of, of politeness and um, civility, they can then go away into their spaces that are more um, particular or more uh, defined perhaps by uh, gender or ethnicity and uh, pursue different kinds of cultures. So the parental anxiety about Facebook, except apart from uh, how much time they were spending on it, seemed to be uh, really beginning to miss the point because... Um, Basically, they were saying, hi, um, happy birthday, how are you doing? <laughs> Have you done the homework yet? Um, and that was, that was um, pretty much it. So, of course, they were, um, just as when they get out of the um, 
um, when they get out of the classroom and this kind of highly controlled standardized space they were looking for other ways uh, and, and they collapsed the home similarly when they got away from that very standardized space of Facebook where everyone was on again they're looking for um, other places um, and I know a number of us have spent a little while asking and being asked, well, are they all going to one other place? And I think it's kind of becoming clear that they're not. They're going to many places, and that is precisely the point. They are not all going to the one place because uh, actually... Um, young people are not any more homogenous than adults are homogenous and we aren't all going to go to the same place when we leave this room and why on earth do we imagine that young people are going to? Um, I don't know. So this is just one girl talking about um, Tumblr which was one of those kind of fantastic moments at the end of an interview when I thought I'd nearly done and I just suddenly said I don't know, people are talking about Tumblr, tell me about it and she just suddenly in this impassioned moment uh, said that, um, you know, it's just my space. I love the way she said that, like, my space. Poor old my space, uh, end of word. Um, she spends hours here, she has thousands of pictures, she edits enormously, it's, she talks about it in terms of her kind of identity. Uh, she goes back through her pictures and she reflects upon how she's changing. It's a kind of reflexive space for her. Um, but only a very few of them, and the stats back this up, only very few are using this. Others are on Twitter, others are on Instagram, um, others are doing other things. The boys on the Xbox are all chatting together. Um, it's fantastically diverse and um, uh, kind of that's, that's the point. It's getting away from that standardised moment. So, it won't surprise you then if I tell you my last um, tale from fieldwork. Um, what happened uh, when the school tried to do the thing that looked to me the most like a moment of connected learning. Um, when they, uh, so the world challenge, I gather, really is a world challenge, or at least it's a challenge in many countries in the global north, where um, organised on an international level, children are mobilised within schools to raise money uh, through charity work or through some kind of fundraising work, um, and then they get to go to a developing country and travel and do something charitable and it's a, it's a big commercial um, or a big uh, organisational enterprise and the school signed up for this and the idea was that it would be, you know, there would be this website it would be digital, you would talk to people from all around the world, you would get a sense of where in the world you were going to um, you would uh, fundraise and record your achievements and fundraising a bit like the levels um, on the website uh, and to cut a very um, long story short, uh, a rather select group of young people, and quite often in the fieldwork it turned out to be a rather um, select group of young people from the school, from the class, were um, selected to enter this challenge and to raise the fun funds. They had to raise about $3,000 each over the year, which was a big deal. It's a, it's a lot for a 13-year-old to raise £2,000. And um, it was meant to be organised through layers of digital connections um, from uh, email and uh, um, intranet at the class level or at the school level to the global website. Um, and 
as I said, to cut a long story short, almost none of the digital side of it worked, and almost every other side of it worked. Um, and it was a very nice year um, in which they um, went out and they um, helped old ladies put their um, food in um, in bags in supermarkets and they washed their neighbours' cars and they babysat their neighbours' kids and they raised the money and they met face-to-face frequently and they talked to each other and they shared the pleasure of the process together um, and uh, they met with the teacher face-to-face and they enjoyed the occasions and there was a lot of laughter and a lot of joke and they had cake sales in the school and everyone saw them doing all the face-to-face stuff was a pleasure and there was lots of it and the digital stuff really barely worked until the very last moment when they went to happened to be Malaysia um, they went there and then they put all the photos on Facebook when they got home and that was the kind of the digital moment so connection yes um, digital no and the reasons were all about the need for a kind of rational disconnection um, the teacher couldn't organise the um, process on Facebook because she didn't want them to be able to access her Facebook. And in fact, the kids did a bit of organising on Facebook, but they didn't tell the teacher because they didn't want her on their Facebook. Um, and um, uh, no one could ever remember the password for the Global Challenge site, so no one ever went on that because passwords are... There were lots of kinds of disconnects that you could understand um, why it was um, that they... Uh, connection yes um, but in terms of the digital the connections are too tight, too close people need those separations and there was a lot at stake in keeping those spaces um, those digital spaces separate so this is my last slide which is to say um, I don't know if people know that my project is named after this lovely French film, does anyone know the film? called um, I mean, it's called the class in English, and in fr- fr- French it's called uh, Entre les Murs, um, Within the Walls, and it's, um, it illustrates beautifully what it is that I've been talking about, because it's a, um, a, w- a, a one-year film of one class of 13-year-olds, um, and the teacher, this is in France, the teacher decides that he'll try and kind of open the doors and let the outside in, and let the children's real lives come into the process of teaching uh, and um, as a result the class is disrupted and what comes in is not what he can cope with but is all kinds of family conflict and ethnic difficulties and infighting and bullying and um, he wishes that he'd kept his class as a civil democratic space and instead what we see is the kind of the hierarchy of the school comes down and um, to the viewer a kind of injustice is done where the structures are reasserted um, and the right thing is not done by the kids who were um, actually getting into um, difficulties. So it's a rather kind of quietly shocking um, story about how institutions reassert themselves um, rather than truly listening to the needs um, of children whose lives, of course, cross all of these different spaces. Um, but the children were, as it were, happy before also when the spaces were um, kept separate. So I think, um, just to kind of as a last word, I think there are lots of ways in which the young people, the parents, the teachers could all see the possibilities of connection, of, of going beyond school, of breaking down um, uh, boundaries, but there were 
far more reasons why they, especially in this kind of um, uncertain times, they preferred to revert back to their rather standardized managing structures. Um, and the structures that I've pointed to are not so much traditional structures, they're still digital structures of Facebook, of the school information management system they're coming in. Um, so they're new in the world of the school or the smart board and it's ready access to YouTube and the world of Hollywood kind of entering a, um, a British school. Uh, but um, nonetheless, they serve as the structures that kind of order and organize um, the boundaries in people's lives in ways that fit with their vested interests. And so um, we're quite a long way um, from what Mimi keeps hoping for um, in the world of connected learning. Thank you. Right. Um, and and I thought it was really interesting to see that there were opportunities she could have taken, but yeah. she didn't follow up on them. Um, but I was wondering about sort of like in the long view, when you know, like maybe now she's not taking a culture class or something, but maybe in college she mm. will pick that up again or something like that. So mm -hmm. is this something that you consider, and also, or is there like any research that you've seen that's really looking at how these practices, what kids are doing will later manifest themselves in their life and especially related to, you know, like digital digital play or digital making. Mm. That's, that's a good question. Um, I suppose um, there are two kinds of studies that try to get at that and one is to say we see what young people are interested in now, where might it get them? Uh, and the other is to say we see how people became kind of creative what, what what were the steps they took to get there? So if you do the retrospective study, then you could take your present-day creative and say, yes, I can see that you know the Play-Doh thing didn't go anywhere when she was 13, but then she took up sculpture when she went to university, and it was all part of a narrative. Um, but from looking looked at prospectively, we can also see that very many start something and very few follow it on. And I suppose one of the hopes of connected learning is that it won't just be social reproduction, but that some who don't have those opportunities might gain those opportunities because, you know, let's imagine that the school knew that she was doing this and kind of saw that there was a possibility to um, develop, you know, she could have brought some of the work or shown some of the work in the art class and found others who were doing something creative and the school could have provided a, you know, could have scaffolded that, could have provided a path that, and didn't. Um, so in fact she's going to go off and be a scientist, which is no bad thing of course, but um, uh, uh, so I think um, when you look at all those um, surveys about how many are doing remixing or hacking or going to make a groups fairs or you know it's it's just tiny and that's why i think the the, the blocked pathways are much more significant than the the ones for whom it comes right hi um, yeah thanks very much for the talk i have one quick clarifying question and then a real question the clarifying question was when you talked about the statistics that are being assembled which was mind-boggling. Um, you, you talked about them being called out at the end of the day. Was that in some sort of group setting or 
two individuals? Uh, it was to the class. So the end of the class, end, end of the day, the teacher, and maybe it was this kind of number, might say, um, you know, you were bad in science and you were, where were you in music, um, but you did a really great piece of homework. And the making visible of it, I just found kind of extraordinary. Um, and that's why I thought the kids would have hated it, but they liked it because they knew where they were and it diffused the emotion, oddly because it became calm, yeah, okay, so, you know, you are rubbish at maths and you are late and you did do a good bit of homework. Why would we get upset about hearing it? Okay, That's well, kind of interesting. That, that, what I would call fascistic, aside, <laughs> <laughs> one, um, one thing that really struck me listening, so I, I came up through the comprehensive school system and I, I made the assumption this was a comprehensive school based on Yes, sorry, um, this was so what we call a bog-standard comp in Britain. Yeah. So I came up through that kind of system in 1990 South Wales, and I was amazed that you take away, the, say, the smart board, and so many of the values, the approaches seem to be exactly the same. Um, and thinking about things like you know, attitudes to difference and tolerance of surveillance, um, you know, my gut reaction was, wow, that feels so British to me, having been over here for a year and a bit. Um, I wondered, I know this is slightly outside of the scope of what we're trying to do, but I wondered if you had any reflections on, like, the cultural context and whether you've looked at studies in other countries that have, mm. that have sort of spoken to that. Mm. Well, um, people here have experience of more education systems than I possibly can, so others might want to pitch in, but um, uh, a few things. So when I, g I, g I gave this talk in Denmark, um, and Denmark is very proud of its um, uh, the freedom it gives to the teachers and the lack of kind of surveillance structures and top-down um, hierarchies that it operates within the school and the emphasis it has on creativity. So they were um, they were kind of more um, horrified, but it was kind of interesting seeing how what how they manage that. So they manage it partly by much smaller schools. So it takes a lot of investment and a lot of kind of resources to manage a more informal and more flexible system. And the British secondary school has got quite large, which might be, which is um, strongly about resources. Um, when I've talked about it to um, uh, folks from this country, um, and others might want to pitch in. Um, it seems to me that uh, there isn't always the same. Um, it's particularly, maybe it's particularly British that we ha still have what you might think of as a kind of experiment of trying to have the wealthier and the poorer kids in the same school, and it is really um, ethnically heterogeneous. And I can see that, and the school would say they need some kinds of practices to manage what could be tension and conflict and inequality visible within the classroom. So it seems very interventionist and top-down, but perhaps that's because the, you know, like my French teacher as well, the kind of the fear of what you could let in is quite large. And if you've managed that out already by having wealthy schools and wealthy neighbourhoods and poor schools and poor neighbourhoods and schools segregated by ethnicity and so on, then the problems are different, but they're not so visible within the class, perhaps. Is that fair? I don't know. <laughs> Someone who knows about American schools. Yeah. I might be like totally uh, 
anyone correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, I've been, I have a lot of friends who work in for charter schools or charter uh. school networks, and it seems like what they're trying to do is very similar to what you're ta talking uh -huh. about here, is like really manage these things really closely. Um, yeah. Have kids step on this one tile when they're walking through the hallway so they don't, yeah. you know, like so everything's in order. Yeah. Um, and my niece is now at the same elementary school I went to yeah. uh, 20 years later. And it's so much more punitive in her school, where it seems very similar to this, where like at mm. the end of the day, you they're the bulldogs, so you get a bone uh, in kindergarten, you get a red, yellow, or green, depending on how good you've been. And she'll come home and be like, I got a red bone today. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and it strikes my whole family as very punitive, but then mm -hmm. I see um, private schools that are so much more like hippy-dippy sort of, and like mm -hmm. creative and do whatever you want, mm -hmm. um, where you have wealthier communities of them. So I, I see this distinction between sort of the public mm -hmm. schools that, and charter schools in mm -hmm. poorer neighborhoods that are doing this really punitive and then these kids who have the opportunity to go to a much wealthier school and have a more free and creative sort of experience. Mm -hmm. and, and, and so in some ways, yes, it's doing what you're saying, like um, mm. managing it based on you know, mm. communities there. Not to say that public schools aren't mixing. In mm. my area, there's a lot of mixing of mm -hmm. the and, um, mm. and poor kids in the public schools. Mm. Um, a lot of like different programs and schools to do that, not necessarily in one classroom. Uh -huh. um, so it, that's, it's not that that's not happening, but I do, I do see this distinction between public versus private, and ultimately the sort of education that these kids are getting mm. will later Hopefully, the aim is for everyone to go to universities at, from a charter school or from uh, private school. So they're going to be coming from these very different experiences to the same place. And I, don't know. I, I find that problematic. I think we have taught in this session. I was going to ask a different question, but I want to riff off this now. Um, so, I, and I wonder what you think about this. Uh, I went to, okay, one, I probably went to school like 20 years before you did. Um, but my grade school experience was in a, a rural, kind of a, a lower, lower class to lower middle class rural school district uh, that covered like an entire county, right? Because mm. the population was so sparse, and um, we had lots of those. You get a gold star, you get nothing. Mm. Good old fashioned shame mechanics. Right? Mm. And I, but the interesting thing to me though is that. Um, they somewhat, in, in my recollection, served to split off people who were willing to kind of engage things like technology and learning. Like the students who were rewarded were the ones who responded to the systems that the educators wanted to put in, and so they were kind of eventually shunted off into their own parallel yeah. track, right? And the students who obviously didn't care and had no con had no cultural context to care yeah. were then shunted off in a different direction, right? They were like, you're hopeless from word go. Right, and, and I'm wondering if, if there's the possibility that um, that philosophy, if not literal execution, is is finding its way into some of the situations that we were talking about. Kind of the mm. viewing of people who are willing to embrace certain progressive mm. methodologies or pedagogies mm. using technology to be, oh, there's hope for mm. you yet, uh, but the people who don't respond to it kind of be like, well, whatever. Mm. Um. Well, in a way, um, of course, the 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 ambition of connect of of most people actually probably bringing technologies into school or many bringing technologies into school is to do exactly the opposite, which is to try to find a way of motivating and enhancing the skills of the ones who are otherwise disaffected by a kind of traditional book learning um, hierarchical model of 
um, of, of teaching. So it's meant to be the opposite of anything, you know, either a kind of equal opportunity to join in the um, opportunities of the digital age or um, particularly those who are otherwise disaffected. Um, but yes, um, so we had, so for example, when I um, asked the teacher why four of our class were the ones who were in the global challenge um, and there'd been a very kind of public competition to get into it and they happened to be, happened to be very um, middle class kids who got into that challenge and I tried to get to reflect on it and she said well you know it was a fair process and um, everyone had a chance and they you know they wrote good things and she just wouldn't see that what she'd done was give an advantage to the already advantaged and done something that reproduced um, so it was very hard to you know they, they had a lot of kind of ways of talking around that discourse of fairness which meant treating everybody the same and if on if everyone's treated the same and those who are already advantaged do better at that game then that wasn't the teacher's problem and it's you know in fairness to them uh, society does expect schools to put right a huge number of ills that really begin outside school gates and the classrooms also got to teach maths and history and science and music and so on so there's a big burden on the teachers and they're trying to push that back and trying to say well in my classroom I run a fair space in which everyone has the same kind of chance and that's what a lot of that talk and a lot of that management of the classroom space is about is about very kind of performative display of fairness yeah it seems like the the idea of democracy then turns into meritocracy right which is kind of a a, a false way of equalizing, right? Oh, it's oh. just like, well, what you produce is what matters, which kind of sounds like what you had just yeah. said with the, yeah. with the, they wrote the best essays or something yeah. like that. Right. What you produce is what matters, but of course people who have oh. massive advantages are going to have more tools with which to produce better stuff yeah. in the first place. Yeah. Thank you. So I'm really interested in the framing of the Connected Learning Network. And um, last year at the DML conference, I organized a track at, at DML about youth and social movements. And um, I brought in, you know, to that track space a number of groups from around the country and around the world that integrate digital media literacy workshops with community organizing and critical consciousness raising. Um, and a lot of them are working, you know, they're working on all kinds of things. Um, many of them are working on uh, gentrification and displacement. They might be working on the school to prison pipeline. They might be working on trying to increase funding for public education. Um, they're working on a wide range of things that are directly affecting the lives of the, of the young people who are part of these projects and these programs. It feels to me like there's long been a disconnect between the the goal of of the the idea that connected learning and increased access to network ICTs would somehow get us to a place of critical consciousness and civic engagement and building sort of well I would say youth power. Um, I don't see why anybody would think that would happen. So, but then we get disappointed 
when it doesn't. So you know, we bring in these network tools and we organize uh, digital media literacy sort of initiatives that are tool focused. And often, you know, those may or may not work on their own terms, um, but they're certainly not going to get us to um, a, a place of the development of, of liberatory consciousness among young people. At the same time, there's this whole parallel universe of people doing that work, trying to develop a praxis of critical digital media literacy. And I'd love to hear you think about that disconnect. Maybe it's one of these productive disconnects because it's a space that's separate from the institutions. Like, could we really imagine that there would be a liberatory pedagogy of critical digital media literacy inside the state-run school system? I don't know. Um, maybe well, it's a productive disconnect. Well, my colleagues in Denmark would say that they get quite close. And I think the ways in which they would say they get quite... What they do in their... And I spent a month um, visiting a number of centres um, in May. Um, what they do looks like very very like what we do in the States or in Britain or in other places in terms of the kind of... you know, And the, um, the scholars are all interconnected and people draw on the same kinds of theory. And uh, so, the, so the language is very similar. Uh, you go into a kind of Danish museum setting where there's a youth project going on. It looks pretty much like the ones I saw in, I don't know, Chicago um, or wherever. But the culture is different. And I think that's what we really struggle with in thinking about the kind of wider context. And it's what I wanted to say um, in just kind of waving my hands at, at the risk society and the breakdown of other kinds of structures that used to guarantee um, I don't know, a uh, secure standard of living or a traditional set of um, norms and values that you could rely upon or a perception of career progression, those things. So I think the, the result is a kind of huge anxiety. So I don't think it's that um, young people couldn't benefit when they're in the setting, but they, the translation to the rest of their lives when they are there are so many things to worry about and they are just beginning to worry, but their parents are really worried for them, um, it, that's the disconnect that's that's very um, very hard to imagine. So I think in the connected learning vision, um, and many who work in the field of youth work, the the hope is or the belief is that young people are genuinely civically interested and they um, are truly motivated by opportunities for um, various kinds of efficacy and um, uh, engagement and they have kind of pretty decent values and they know when someone's hurt or when something's unfair or when something's wrong and they want to they want to put it right I mean I think you know there is a huge belief that that's how young people are and then they turn into you know jaded cynical adults who just try to kind of you know look out for number one and but there is that moment when it could be otherwise and that's why lots of people want to work with youth but what I'm trying to do in kind of portraying the you know the just 28 children's lives portray it in the round is see how those other spaces in their lives when they're not in the literacy class or they're not in the civic centre or they're not in the you know creative museum opportunity but they're somewhere else how that is constraining and pressurising and um, undermining so there isn't that tra there isn't any kind of translation and I think it's also very undermining you know if you do find one of those settings and you feel that you've been empowered and you've created something and then nobody knows about it at school or 
no one is going to care and understand about it at home. It just doesn't connect. Then that is worse than, um, you know, worse than neutral. It's positively undermining. And that's why the connected vision, you know, if it could work, would be right. It would say kids need validation as they, you know, in who they are as they go to these different spaces. Um, but they don't get it. And not because they're surrounded by ill-intentioned, you know, hostile, horrible parents and teachers, but these, these teachers were very putting in a lot of effort to delivering a rather kind of onerous and highly specified national curriculum with such a level of um, top-down instruction upon them that there was just no space for them to even ask, do you study music out of school or do you go to clubs and do you make things with technology? Does anyone here, has anyone touched a computer before I teach you how to use the computer? You know, they just didn't have the headspace to do that. Were there any moments where there were students who were involved in some kind of social mobilization outside the school context? Well, one, I guess, did you find mm. any of that? And mm. two, did any of that come into the space of the school? Mm. Well, this is where I, I, I get cautious about um, 28 kids. So on the level of the school, yes, you could see some. And I know that what surveys will say is um, perhaps, um, let's estimate, between 2 and 10% of the cohort is in some way kind of civically engaged or creatively engaged or... but. <laughs> happened in our class? Not really. And I think that's partly about being 13 as well. So, for example, we had um, a couple of kids who, uh, one I can think of who was very active in his um, uh, Turkish diasporic community where he um, um, was learning an instrument and playing in a kind of community setting and it was valued and he got a lot of support for that and he you could see that he would become, you know, might become more kind of engaged in that community. And it was just so striking to me that when he got to the music class at school, nobody knew he could play an instrument that no one had even heard of or knew how to pronounce. Um, and, uh, he w and he acted the clown. And he acted the clown, of course, because he felt he wasn't serious at school. And he was serious in this other place. And they just thought, how nice to have a class clown, and laughed. Um, so there were a lot, you know, when I come back to the cupcakes, in a way, was a, a less sad example. But there were a number that were kind of the, the, the blocking of what could be constructive connections were, yeah, sometimes quite sad. Right. To me, I mean, we've talked a little bit about how you saw some differences or could explain some of the pieces of um, uh, possible disconnection by class differences or some cultural differences. But it looked to me like the boys in the class were sort of in the center of the yeah. So I wonder if you could just make some observations about how gender comes into Yeah. Um, it, it was, in a way, it was a little unfortunate that the class was two thirds boys, one third girls, and that was partly why. Um, but one of the things um, we asked them all to do their ego networks as well, and to talk about their different kinds of um, friendship groups. And I think one of the things that was striking was how 
easy it was for the boys to kind of take that visible central space because their, um, not a stereotype, but their kind of conception of friendship was around football and around computer games and having lots of friends who were kind of loosely in the group. So they could kind of do a lot of friendly um, display of, you know, we're at the heart of the class and we're kind of in the group and we, you know, did you see the football match last night or um, let's meet afterwards and play on Xbox. And the girls by uh, 13 had a very strong notion that friendship was about pairing and it was about kind of sharing intimacies within the pairs and so the pairs would sort of go off and talk in other kinds of spaces and it's not that they weren't doing that but it didn't have that visibility so a network of course um, plays on multiple connections and so it put the boys at the centre um, and some of those girls on the edge more were um, happily on the edge in a way and some of them were not um, and I was sort of in a way more struck by how also the white kids took the space so the two there were there was a pairing of white girls who also kind of sat in the centre and they were the the popular, the cool girls, the ones who are, you know, in the group on Saturday night going out and the others weren't. It's very interesting, 13, because they're, some of them are um, still children and some of them are, you know, young adults and it makes for a lot of kind of interesting tensions. Yeah. I just want to continue on, on your question. Um, I wanted to hear your thoughts. Is it beneficial to have a classroom set up where two-thirds are boys and two-thirds? One-third is girls. Yeah. Or would it be better to be more, like, equal level? It was, the school said it was an accident, um, and that's the way it, um, it wasn't, uh, the, not all the other classes were like that. Was it beneficial? Hmm. I think it was important that um, there was such a lot of diversity that no one group dominated. So there wasn't a lot of um, kind of machismo of, of you know being loud young men together. They 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 took their masculinity in very different ways, if you like, and were kind of becoming very different kinds of young men. So. Uh, I don't know. I mean, the research would say maybe the girls are kind of pushed to the edge in science, but actually I didn't see that. So what, what kind of things are you thinking of? What difference do you think it might make? In the real world, you know, it's more like 50-50, so classrooms should perhaps resemble that. Yeah, well, yes. Yeah, well, the school was, so it was just the, I don't know, too many boys born that year or something. Yeah. So you talked a lot about the opposition between um, the classroom and the home, but I wonder if you um, thought at all about um, sort of uh, in-between spaces between schoolwork and play, like extracurricular activities or clubs. I mean, you mentioned music class, but that seems like, uh. like a class. What, what, what about clubs? Is there um, any sort of creative, um, self-directed work that's going on there. I, I understand probably yeah. in these contexts there's probably like a teacher who's an advisor, but yeah. those sorts of spaces. Um, yes. Um, 
there was it, it, it was so um, individual that it, in a way you know that so that was part of our, my story in a way of how when they come out of that imposed democratic space of the class they all go in different directions and they did I think perhaps the most striking thing about their different activities out of school was how they were still at 13 heavily uh, driven or framed by the family. Um, and, you know, sometimes you hear kind of despairing things in the paper about how um, parents can't talk to their 13 year olds anymore or the kids are kind of off on Facebook and not in the family. We saw quite a lot of ways in which um, someone would uh, one girl did uh, rock, cl- uh, rock climbing because she went with her dad and the boy who um, played the sars went off and did it with his um, uh, relatives and uh, there was kind of quite a lot of family things together that would take them into extracurricular activities and because there's no reason to be surprised I mean the family is the key structure even more important than the school except that there is just such a strong discourse of broken schools and broken families that it was just kind of interesting to see that how, how, how strong that was really the other thing we did when we did the ego networks um, was we wanted to see, okay, so who are the important people in your life? And these kids had on average about 500 um, Facebook friends that, you know, friends, whatever that means. But on average, they put 16 people down on a piece of paper and said, these are the important people in my life. And I spent a bit of time kind of thinking about the difference between the 16 and the 500. And the 16 were about a third family probably and just a few from those other activities so it might be somebody from drama group or somebody that you play sports with but they didn't they would be activities but they didn't necessarily very often figure as important people in their lives um it was really kind of friends family and quite small you know one one thought i have is what kind of constrained local worlds children live in and we talk about globalization and so on but they really are living within a few mile radius and a small group of people and that's you know that's fine Nice one quick question mm. um, I love that you had fieldwork pictures because they're so evocative and compelling mm. so thinking about how some of them were so much about kind of what we do here what we don't bring into the class mm. Did you find many instances where the insti- you know, the school as an institution was trying to reach into that disconnected space and promote certain forms of behavior, civility? Was there ever was it ever trying to forget the word colonize into that space? Or mm. did it really not see that it's you know, the online social media world was not its domain mm. to be engaged with in that regard? I think this is something that um, the education community is completely torn about and I can see schools taking really different um, approaches um, though there are relatively few I think at least in Britain who will permit Facebook and phones and so on in schools. Um, there are plenty where they enter the school anyway because the school doesn't have um, very much control and the kids do it under the desk and find their ways around um, in the computer room and so on. Um, And the school was quite good at keeping that out. But it was good at keeping it out partly out of a kind of fear mentality. Um, I'll go back to the fear thing that was quite strong. So 
I don't actually know how often um, you might expect the police to visit a school, but you know they would be called once a week or so to deal with something that was going on on Facebook or some kind of bullying on phones. Or it was it was a, a, also a visible presence. And I mean, I'm thinking a lot about how the structures of authority are being made visible. So what goes on on Facebook might seem completely um, invisible to the school but it bubbles up occasionally. You see somebody in uniform walking across the playground and a child hauled out of class, and you know. Uh, so for the teachers, the, the kind of anxieties about social media were so much stronger than the learning possibilities. That, but other schools are doing it differently. Um, but there's a lot of worry about this. Yeah. Jim. Um, uh, I'm, I'm impressed with this uh, concept of a school information management system. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, uh, I'm, I'm curious where, where, where it's coming from. Um, what they, who enters the data, who enters the information, yeah. the school manages it, uh, how it circulates it, uh, what is it about? So that's one part of my question. The other part of my question is, um, uh, having been a couple of years uh, junior high school teacher and knowing this age group, which uh -huh. is a really strange group of uh, age to sort of study for, you know, trying to figure out. I'm just curious why you chose this. Uh, I, I guess I heard it was simply you had an opportunity that you took advantage of. Uh, uh, normally, studying this age as a might offer some unique opportunities to look yeah. at social because yeah. this is an age where you know social formation is uh, really critical. I think sometimes much more so, uh, at least from my experience in a city mm. school in New York City, than intellectual formation. So is that the reason you chose that yeah. age group, or was it just? Yeah. Sorry. No. I. I. Uh, it was chosen very deliberately. Um, my point about um, them being the kind of the lost year is, I think that. Unanticipated by us, made it easier to get access to them because they weren't in, um, they hadn't entered the um, exam process that was going to take them through to the end of school. So that helped us. But no, we chose them uh, deliberately because they just seemed to epitomise that tension between being still kind of embedded at home and being independent and. Um, because all the tensions about how they would define their interests and their motivations and their spaces where they wanted to be with particular people or particular groups, all those freedoms would be kind of most contested both with parents and with um, schools. So yes, they were the troublesome year, uh, if you like. Um, and it was only tongue-in-cheek that we said they were also the year that they were on Facebook because... As we saw, they were already past that. Um, and it, from the, from the um, connected learning point of view, from the point of view of thinking what are their educational pathways ahead, it's before, they, before they're locked down. So, that, so it is still all to play for, in a way, though it's becoming too late for some of them already. Uh, yes, the, the management system. I meant to look up who um, owned the one uh, in this school, and um, I should have done, um, and I haven't done it. E each 
I mean, there's a number of huge educational providers, educational technology providers, and schools sign up to the contract. And this school had signed up, like many, to a contract that provided the system that uh, managed the information um, and the database and also the curriculum materials. And it's that very close tie between the curriculum materials, between what the kids are going to learn and how everything that they're going to learn is kind of pre-coded into the categories on which they will then get graded. And the kind of seamless um, way in which the content of the curriculum was encoded together with the behaviour management that was just so fascinating. So the screen would just show, you know, you have learned long division or you're doing well in trigonometry, but you were rude and late for class five times this week. And it's as if it's all the same kind of information, which just seemed um, extraordinary. So these are very expensive contracts. And that's why I put up the Bank of America at the start, really. I mean, it was to say, you know, there is big business behind um, the management of a process which you can see from a school's point of view is very difficult. The trend in, in British education policy now is to give schools complete freedom over their curriculum and their management of everything. And I don't know, because it was six months since I walked out of the school, how they're managing this freedom. But I haven't seen any teachers with any spare time to manage anything. And I can see why they would want a pre-provided system that kind of takes care of, you know, everything from, And does yeah. that uh, information get shared with parents as well? Uh, yeah. Or yeah, that was another, yes. So we did ask these questions. Um, so the, there, was a, there was a hope that the information would get shared with the parents, uh, and it never did. And um, there was a special project through the year of our field work that the school happened, we happened to coincide with, which was to try to gather the emails of all the parents um, so that they could send an email to this class or that class and say your child has been learning trigonometry this week or your child has been whatever. Um, and by the end of the year, the school had not collected the emails of the parents. And, you know, I, I just keep thinking, well, I could say what an incompetent school. Goodness me, you can collect the emails. We do it all the time. And then I say, but they managed the system. They didn't manage this. There must be something at stake. And when we started asking the teachers, it was the sense that the flood of concerns and requests and complaints that they could let in from parents would be just like my French teacher in Entre Lumière letting in letting the kids bring in a story from home. You know, it would just so on the school information management system they wanted to let the parents have access and maybe even the parents have rights to access. I mean that would be a question they hadn't considered, but they were not it would not happen because there were too many entrenched interests against that and there were we, we witnessed the most fantastic day when the um, uh, parents all came in one by one and every ten minutes the teacher sat down and you know what do you call it it was the school conference yeah so it was called progress day um, and uh, we sat in on this um, and the parents came in and the teacher would kind of read out the contents of the database and she'd say your child is level 4b in math and 6c in science and has seven lates and you know four behavioral issues and the parents were just like oh my god you know third of them were listening in a foreign language for a start and it was such a it was another dis 
disconnect and not a productive disconnect, but one that served the interests of the school, if not the parents. But you did mention that some of the students reacted positively yeah. for this they liked it. The kids learned it. They could say things like, um, uh, you know, Even if it's negative, they still because they yes, because they learned it, because they could manage it, because it was a game, and you know, I could. Some of the extracurricular activities also come in levels. So you know, they could say, I'm a level 54, and you know, whatever computer game I'm playing and I'm a level whatever I am in science and history and there's a very easy consonance um, across them that the parents um, didn't understand it and it was a point of obfuscation and it required of them therefore a huge trust in the school which was delivering on results so it wasn't uh, inappropriate for them to trust it um, but even if they didn't understand it they felt it was somehow fair because everything was coded on a system and it wasn't teacher's favourite or you know the kid that everyone disliked it was somehow the, 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 the visibility of the coding seemed to them to make for fairness. I'm interested in the, the dichotomy you started at the very beginning saying uh, you were not focusing on the geeky and entrepreneurial hacker kids, you were instead focusing on the ordinary kids. And I think there's a very fuzzy line there, of course. And sure. Hearing, where you might draw that into how you saw the kids in, in your class um, sort of seeing the, the behind the curtain a little bit maybe, I don't know the best way to put it, but um, sort of, you know, kids are creative with their identities online and they're creative with the images they're using. You uh, had the quote about the girl who is uh, personalizing her Tumblr profile for five hours. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, is there ever a point where she thought, how is this all working? What, you know, am I? Yeah. What is this box that I'm in, and can I get out of it? Uh, I don't yeah. know. Or, or is that even is that even the, the, the line to draw? And whether is is it inherently more creative to kind of hack the system or not? That, that's that's a good question. Um, in the in the connected learning network, there's. Um, uh, some are from media studies and some are from um, various social sciences and quite a few are from education. And the ones who are from education are very keen on us being precise in how we think about um, learning and uh, markers of kind of gaining expertise and efficacy. And so they're very keen that I don't conclude that because a young person is confident in what they do and gets pleasure in what they do and does it nicely that, that counts as them having kind of learned something and they so they kind of developed all these questions which were very um, uh, thought provoking uh, like um, what kind of expert what were the kind of stages in gaining expertise or could you see um, a young person kind of reflecting on what they know now that they didn't know a year ago and what were the kind of supports and scaffolds that have got them to gain the next kind of knowledge and at what point could they become reflexive about that say um, and on those kinds of criteria um, we saw very little in relation to um, uh, 
a lot of the kind of messing around on computers, a lot of which kind of started and stopped. Um, a kid who started a YouTube channel and did it for a little while and then stopped, or a child who uh, there were lo various experiments where they make kind of funny videos and upload them and you know mess with how they appear or. Um, by contrast with the way in which some of them were very kind of serious in sports or in music and were progressing and could have those conversations with us about how they'd learned and how they'd improved at soccer or um, rock climbing or whatever. So within the, within the ways in which a 13-year-old is able to express learning and progression, they could do it in other areas much more than they could do it in relation to anything digital. And that's why I sort of felt like it was messing around but not geeking out, to use Mimi's terms. Do they feel like they're good with technology? Like, do they all feel confident with it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Final quick question. I have a, first of all, thank you for your sharing. And I have a quite practical question that what should the schools do next? Should they <laughs> take some measures according to your findings or they just let the water flow? <laughs> let the students organize by themselves? Huh. Well, um, yeah. I have, so, I have in a way so many answers to that question, but um, it wasn't a project designed to produce recommendations in that in that way. And I would, um, I suppose, the overwhelming thing that maybe anyone thinks, having spent a year with a small number of young people and we spent a lot of time with them, is that it's kind of sad that we came to know a lot about them that their teachers don't know. Um, we came to know things about them that their parents don't know, but I sort of felt that that was appropriate because we were in a different position. And I didn't feel that everything we knew the parents should know, you know, the, the young people need privacy. But we learned a lot of things about them that their teachers, if they'd known, they could have thought of different examples in class that recognised that knowledge. They could have found some synergies between um, out-of-school and in-school learning that would not have been fantastically difficult for them to manage. They just, it's like they didn't even think to ask. And, and the image that was always in my mind, you know, the teachers would say things to us like, you're going to go home with them. As if we were going to go to Mars or something, you know, we were going to enter a morass of chaos and they, you know, home was a, a, a place of somehow chaotic emotional misbehaviour and time wasting. Um, and home wasn't like that and outside wasn't like that and I don't know why and similarly in a way the parents would say so what goes on at school as if you know that was a weird and bizarre place too and so you can see the impetus for connecting things up they shouldn't be quite so foreign and quite so weird to each other and not that the kids want the teachers to come home and have a look at them. <laughs> <laughs> all right thank you. that's all thank you again that's Thank you for great questions. <laughs> I have to. I'm going to.